Can you open up to the book of Mark chapter 14? That's where we'll be this morning. And a massive happy Mother's Day to all of the mums in our midst this morning. We love families, we love kids, and therefore we love mums. Uh, we love mums because the Bible tells us to love mums, and they're, 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 they are, you are mums, you are God's design. That is exactly uh, uh, a blessing to the, to the family of God, and of course, uh, every family, the, the Proverbs tell us that a, a wise woman builds up a house, and a foolish woman tears down her house with her own hands. So we're just very thankful to God for, for wise, loving, sacrificial, life-giving, literally and spiritually and, and uh, 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 emotionally in all those ways that mothers give life to their families, build up their homes, uh, support their husbands in all of those ways. Thank you. God bless you. And I'm actually just going to pray over the mums before we jump into the word. Uh, so can you, uh, if you've got your mum or a wife or something near you, you can just pop your hand on their back and we're just going to pray a blessing over them. Father God, we thank you for our mums. We thank you for our physical mums who have gone through that sacrifice of, 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 of bearing us and carrying us and weaning us and training us how to, how to live and looking after us and, and being there for us on days that we need support. We thank you so much for our mums and many of them are not, not here. If we're adults, our physical mums may not be in the room, but we thank you for your common grace blessing to us through them. We thank you especially for the mums that have, uh, 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 like Keith said, as Eunice's and Lois's who have have uh, raised up their children into godliness. Maybe, again, they're, they're now grandmothers or they've even passed on to see you, but there are many people here today whose uh, testimony is what it is because you use their mothers to bring them to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures. And we thank you for that, God. We, we continue to pray that you would do that for the little ones in our midst, for the, uh, for the children and even for the teenagers who do not know you and those who do. Would the mothers in the room continue to show them the loving, tender care care of our God Almighty who, who loves us like a, like a mother loves their child. You say, Lord God, that, that even if, even if the extremity happens when a woman abandons her child, never would God abandon his children. So we hold fast to that promise and we look to the example in our mums. We thank you, God, for those who will be mums or who cannot be mums. And we pray that you would be with them and heal their hearts and continue to, to work through their situations to give them great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who are spiritual mums to others in the room, who have come around and put their arms around and given emotional and spiritual and prayer support to those in need. Lord, we thank you for those we see in scripture that you honor them and that you command us to honor them. So we thank you for them, God, and we honor them in our midst as this, this broader family and community of faith, this church goes on to glorify you. We know that mothers, both physical and spiritual, are such a necessary part to the life-giving nature of a church. We thank you, Lord God. And everybody said... Amen. I hope you get plenty of almond croissants and flowers and all of that later on today, ladies, whatever else the, the popular thing is. Uh, we are going to be in Mark 14, and we've come out of, of, of the, the prophetic sermon, if you will, the discourse that we've called it, that Jesus is looking forward. We all uh, have different uh, views on how far forward Jesus was looking, but nonetheless, Jesus was prophesying something to come, something of a great judgment on the ungodly. But now, now we continue to, to walk through this, this, the most important week of the human calendar that has ever occurred. More important than creation week was redemption week. More important than, than the, the, the week that the, the Jews came up out of Egypt or, or that they settled in their land or that, that David took his throne or whatever other week or day or event you want to you put your mind to, the most, the most important week in all the human calendar was this week when Jesus went into Jerusalem, was tried and tested by his enemies, proved himself to be the right teacher, proved himself to be the God-sent prophet and therefore proved himself as Hebrews 2 tells us to be the holy and pure high priest that could make propitiation for sins. What we've been seeing is that as, as he is under the, the testing at the moment, as he is under the microscope of all of the, the, the Jewish leaders and the people who are watching him and his disciples nearby, it's kind of a, 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 an anti-type of that first type which was when the Jews would bring their lambs into the city to be overlooked by the priests so that the lamb could be checked that it was without blemish. 
Jesus has come in these last few days to be checked and assessed and tested by the people around him so that it was evident to them that he was that faultless, without blemish, pure, perfect lamb that was come to die for our sins as a sacrifice. He's been been proven true. No one can prove him wrong. No one can trip him up. No one can out-wrestle him in Scripture. And so we see in chapter 14, in these first 11 verses, we start seeing how people respond to this. As Jesus has has proved himself the king, as he has proved that he is the the prophesied king from the Old Testament, and that he has said that their kingdom, this, this human empire, they've tried to use God's religion mixed with human traditions to set up their own mini empires. He says that's coming down. The true king is here, and he is on his way now to the cross. Because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom established through his sacrificial blood. And so chapter 14 shows us how the Jewish leadership, how Mary, the brother, the sister of Lazarus, and how Judas each respond <coughs> to the kingship of Jesus. How each of them treat the king. So we've entitled today's sermon, How to Treat a King. In verse 1, it reads like this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were those... There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you have always the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant inspired word in our midst. We'll go up to verse one and we see the very first thing (coughs) about this passage that Mark wants us to know is that those who were the opponents of Jesus, those who had lost so thoroughly in debates with him all week are now seeking his death. It says in verse one, it was now two days before the Passover. The Passover was going to happen on the Thursday. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Thursday evening was when they would have the Passover meal. So we are now on about the Tuesday. And on that Tuesday, they are seeking how they might kill him. And look at verse one at the end there. It says, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. In the Jewish calendar, they had uh, since given from the time of Moses three of the big holidays each year. Of course, the Jews had many festivals, many feasts that they would enjoy and only one prescribed fast day. I'm just going to take a short moment to tell us that that means God really loves it when we eat lots in happiness and fasting is, is a, uh, a secret sort of task. But when we come together, we feast, we eat the sweet wine, the great meat. That's God's command. So today you go home and have the feast of Mother's Day uh, of unleavened bread, whatever you want to do, and you eat up in celebration. But back to the text. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the calendar, they were, they were given the uh, uh, three of the big holidays. And in those holidays, all of the men and the, the, the sons of 13 and up were prescribed to come into the city and there they would celebrate. And Passover was one of those days. Pentecost is another day, and, and that's why at the Pentecost feast, when the Holy Spirit falls, we see so many people, it says, from every nation under heaven. The Jews had come from their spread across the Roman Empire to be there, and so it was in the Passover day. The Passover would be celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, uh, which was, you know, one of their months. The four, and then from the 15th onwards to the 22nd would be a seven-day-long feasting party to the Lord God. 
And, and, and this was in celebration of the day that they exited from slavery out of Egypt and they, they, they had their, their Passover meal that night. The next day they ran, out they went, and so they celebrate on that day each year the remembrance of their redemption. This city of Jerusalem would swell upward of 2 million people, the, 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 more, the more liberal estimates suggest. The, as these Jews come from out of town, as they all hustle and bustle and buy their lambs and go into the temple, and, and uh, that's, where, that's why it was such a big scene when Jesus went into the temple and turned over the tables. This is the time of year it is, and so you can understand why the Jews are saying, first of all, because there's, there's holiness laws, uh, and, and we don't want to be doing a trial uh, going into unclean places where the Romans would be sitting because they can't share, uh, share buildings with the uh, Gentiles during a feast. All of these things, they said, for practical measures, let's kill Jesus after the feast. But the most practical measure that we see them mention here in today's text is that if we kill him, this revered, renowned prophet who just destroyed us in debate for two days long, who has healed many thousands of the people in our city, who has driven demons out of the people we could not drive demons out of, who teach them the scriptures in power and authority. If we kill that guy publicly now, we will have an uproar on our hands. We'll have two million Jews. Maybe some of them have never heard of Jesus, but most of them had. And, 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 and once you get a mob that size going, it is unstoppable. And they were very afraid that in an uproar, the Romans would see uh, uh, unrest, civil unrest in Jerusalem, and they would come in and they would take away their town and they would take away their village. And so in order, now you'll see the irony from just the last few weeks, in order to protect their beloved temple and city, they'll kill Jesus so that the Romans don't come and take away their temple and city. How ironic. But this is the, 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 the relationship between God's enemies... Christ's enemies and God's sovereignty that has been going on throughout this gospel. Since the early, uh, a few chapters ago when Jesus rode in on the, on the donkey, they were quoting and singing Psalm 118. Now I keep on bringing this up because this relationship is woven throughout these next few chapters. It is that relationship that, that Jesus says of himself. So he rode in on the, on the donkey and the people were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the first bit of Psalm 118. Praise the Messiah. The King is coming. But the second part of Psalm 118 is what Jesus takes and applies to them. He says that I am the cornerstone. I am the stone that God is going to build everything on and you're going to reject me and yourselves be rejected. I am that stumbling block that God put in Jerusalem, a stone that was cut from no human hands that came out of heaven and struck the earth and destroyed the human kingdoms. I'm that stone which if you're religious and if you're self-righteous and if you're not reading the scriptures and if you don't have a born again repentant heart, you miss the stone. You stumble over it. It's nothing but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what he says. And Jesus is coming now to this part where, where, where in that psalm it says, this is the Lord's doing. This whole relationship between his enemies trying to throw him out and then God using that very act in order to establish his plan, that whole relationship, the psalm says, it is marvelous in our eyes. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. We just keep on having to come back to this because at every point we see the Jews try and do one thing and then God either let it happen and then bring it to his good or he frustrates their plan. This is, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That, that, that though they had every human reason to try and not kill Jesus at the Passover, they were going to arrest him secretly, keep him in the prison, and then kill him once everybody had gone home. The last thing they would want to do is kill him, say, on the 14th of Nisan, when everyone was killing and eating their Passover lamb. Wouldn't want to do that. Everybody's in town. And you wouldn't want to do it like the day after. Because the day after, everybody's waking up after their, their heavy, meaty lamb meal, and they'll all be walking out into the streets. And if you kill him that day, the whole town, the whole city, the millions of people will hear of it and see it. So don't do it that day. And what happens? 
in God's sovereignty. They arrest him on that Thursday night after he celebrates Passover, except he is tried and things pick up more momentum than they can stop and the crowds get angrier than they would have thought and the, and the Pharisees are yelling out with bloodthirstiness more than they had really, really calculated for so that they cry out for his crucifixion that very day so that it is the most public and popular scene that has happened all year round for the Jews. You remember in Luke 24, when Jesus has raised up and he's somehow disguising himself from the disciples and he's walking with them and these two guys are walking on the way to Emmaus and, and he just plays dumb. He pretends he has no clue why they're so sad and they, and they say to him, are you the only man in Israel that does not know what has just happened in the crucifixion of this man Jesus? You're the only one that doesn't know. They can say that because Jesus made it so public. God, by his sovereignty, made it so public, and it had to be so, so that it would not sound like a conspiracy. When the gospel was being preached, when, when, when the apostles would stand up and condemn the Jewish leaders for their killing Jesus, it would sound like a conspiracy if it was all a secret. But the people all knew it. And by doing so, God brought the whole city, the whole nation into the blood guilt so that they had to repent and many would. So God's sovereignty was to make it a public scene out in the open event. They had every reason to avoid that, but God utilized their sin for his own glory. And what a glorious thing it was that right on that, that 24 hour period when they were remembering their redemption from tyranny in Egypt, when they were remembering that the blood of the lamb saves you from wrath, when they were remembering that God's appointed means is the only way to be freed from slavery, as they were remembering all of that, Jesus was on the cross. He was their redemption from slavery to sin. He was the blood, he was the lamb whose blood would save from the wrath of God. He was the only appointed path to freedom from sin and guilt and hell. Have we seen it yet? Have we seen how wise God is and how central the gospel is to all that God is doing in this world? I pray you have believed that, that you've given your faith to the Lord Jesus, that you've trusted in his death for your sake. <clears throat> so this is what the, the Jews had done. They had tried to betray him, but themselves were upset by the Lord God's sovereignty. But look at verse three. At this point, we actually... Uh, Skip back about six days to the Saturday beforehand. Uh, if we're on the Tuesday or the Wednesday, we're now going all the way back to the Saturday uh, uh, where, where, where this story has already been accounted for us in its chrono chronological uh, spot in John's gospel. But, but what Mark does, and this is pretty common with Mark, Luke, and uh, Matthew, that in the gospels they'll, they'll, they'll throw true stories into the book in different orders uh, in order to sort of prove the juxtaposition of certain things. Um, uh, so so what, that's what we're seeing here today. Again, uh, it's not that he's lying. It's not that scripture is not inspired or that it's not uh, uh, inerrant. It is. It's just that uh, this was a common Jewish literary technique. You would be telling a story of all of those people who are betraying the Lord Jesus. And he picks up this story of beautiful worship from a woman named Mary and just puts it right in the middle. The Jews are trying to kill him. Judas is going to betray him. But look at Mary. Look at her love. And this is what he tells us. Some people think that it's, it's just another occurrence of the same story, but it is so similar. I'm bound to believe that it is, in fact, just him looking back to Saturday and going forth. Read what happens. While he was at Bethany, this is, this is just in the little town of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. In that little town, they were in the house of Simon the leper, now, you don't go into a leper's house unless he's been healed. Do you have any theory as to how maybe Simon the leper had gotten healed while Jesus is in town? Yeah, Simon the leper has probably been healed by the Lord Jesus. He welcomes him over in a uh, display of gratitude to his house. And it says there, as he was reclining at table. This is how Jews would sit at their tables. They were very low tables. They weren't running out of wood. It wasn't to save resources. It's just the tradition of the day that it would be a low house. And you would lie down sort of on your side and eat with your, uh, with your hand. And uh, uh, this is why washing feet was so important. Because your feet are right next to the table and right next to somebody else's head. And so you lie down. And this is why it says that John was able to rest his head on Jesus chest 
because, because you're laying down right next to each other. Anyway, just giving ourselves some picture there. As Jesus is lying down like that, reclining at the table, eating of the meal, drinking of the wine, speaking to them about the glories of the Lord God and Scripture, as they would have been asking him questions and discussing with him, a woman came with an alabaster flask. We know from the other story that this woman was Mary, the, mother, uh, the, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus, who had died and been raised again. She came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Nard is, is and pure nard especially, this is like the concentrate, not, not the watered down spray version. This is, the, this is the stuff you put in roller oil things these days and just put tiny bits on your wrist. Guys, you always see girls doing this. It's not a spell. I found out a while ago. It's, it's, an, it's a perfume thing. That's what it is. I was very confused. So they put this like pure nard and nard is made from the roots of a plant that grow in the Himalayas. So when you're over in the Middle East and you've got pure nard, you have something very, very, very expensive. And it's in this, this beautiful alabaster flask. This, it's sort of sealed in such a way that once to open it, you have to crack the neck. That's why it says she, she broke the neck. And instead of taking out just a dab of it, just a, just a drop of it, which is all that is necessary to use it as a perfume, to just put it on the neck, put it on the arms, and you would give off quite a lovely fragrance. What she does is she pours it out over his head, and John 12 says that she also poured it down and anointed his feet. His whole body has been anointed with this expensive, very costly nard. This was an extravagant act of, the Lord, of, uh, of Mary to the Lord Jesus. And what Jesus tells us she was doing is that he says, and I take him to be true and literal when he says that she was, a, she was uh, 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 anointing him for burial. In their day, you would put on a dead body uh, nard, oil, perfumes, fragrances, so that the body would not smell so horrid as it rots or as it is carried over the few days through the processions and then into the grave. Jesus, Jesus had, had been telling everybody, I'm going to die they're going to put me up on a cross. They're going to beat me, whip me, accuse me, kill me, then bury me. And the disciples had missed everything. They were wondering what the, what the, what the, 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 the metaphor here was. What's the poetic device that Jesus is, is utilizing? As he says, he's going to be killed and die and buried and rise again in three days. They, they couldn't get it. But I think Mary got it. Because Mary, along with Martha, had, had, had believed when Jesus came to raise their dead brother Lazarus, who they loved, who we have every reason to believe raised them from young girls. As their father figure, as their older brother was lying dead in the grave, Jesus said to them, believe and he will rise. And, and the sisters had said, we know that he'll rise on the last day. Everybody knows that. I'm not crying because I think he's going to go to hell forever. I'm crying because we've lost my brother now. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not waiting for this thing called the resurrection. The resurrection is a person. It's me. I'm here. I do as I please, when I please. I am that power which will raise all on the last day. I'm going to raise your brother right now. And as Jesus wept, he prayed, he went to the grave, and he raised Lazarus. I think that Mary, after this whole scene, has learned to take Jesus a little bit more literal. I think that Mary, after having dinners with and sitting down with and doing chores with and, and talking with her brother who was dead, I think she began to realize that Jesus is doing things that we don't expect. And that as he was telling each of them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, I think that Mary had an inkling that what he was saying was true, was real, was literal, and she wasn't going to be able to stop it. That broke Mary's heart. Imagine having a friend or maybe it's, maybe it's even some of us here who have had a loved one given some kind of terminal uh, diagnostic, uh, diagnosis and, 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 and we're left in this horrible limbo of life, uh, what Paul will call hopeless if you don't know Jesus, but this horrible limbo of life where we're saying it's, it's set, it's done, death is coming but they're still here. <laughs> Mary had this with Jesus. She was looking at him, healing people, speaking, preaching, helping people, loving his disciples, and she knew he was going to die soon, and she couldn't stop it. 
She couldn't out overpower the Jews or the Romans. She was just brokenhearted at the concept of her dying Savior who had healed her, who had helped her, who had given her back her brother, who had forgiven her of her sins, who had blessed her so much over the last few years. She was brokenhearted at the notion that he would be dying. And so what she, what she did was something that was extravagant to display her glorious sense of worship and gratitude. She poured out the expensive ointment all over his head, all over his feet, in preparation for burial. And this amount of oil would just fill the house with a, with a fume. It would be quite pungent to begin with. And as the breeze of the, the Middle East came through, it would become a lot more pleasant, but it would fill the house. Jesus was going to smell like this all week. Up until the point that he was beaten, his flesh was bruised. Every drop of that oil would have been ripped from his body and he was left in a mess on the cross. But she did what she could. Look at what, look what happens after this. In her extravagant worship and gratitude, which, which only we see in this picture, only true Christians, only people who have come to a recognition of their own guilt and the glory of the Savior can get this kind of worship. The others around her look at her and say, this should have been sold. Why, they say. Look at, look at that uh, question in verse 4. Why was this ointment wasted like that? Why would you waste good, perfectly fine, costly ointment on Jesus? What a waste. Right in his face. The guy about to die for them all. Why would you, why would you do it? The day before he rides in on the donkey as the king into his own city. What a waste, they say. But Mary has learned that, that, that line from the Psalms, what can I give to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? To a true Christian, we may not be throwing every last dollar that we have into some ointment because, of course, Jesus is not physically here, but we get the notion, don't we? True Christians, I, I'm sure that if you've lived your life in seeking to please the Lord Jesus, thank the Lord Jesus, live in gratitude to the Lord Jesus, at some point, somebody has told you that the decision you're making is foolish or silly or dumb or, or, or radical or fanatic. Get over it. Do something more wise. Use your resources more, uh, in a more smart manner. Don't, don't waste it on this religion. Or maybe even Christians have said it. Like, geez, you're a bit, you're a bit passionate, aren't you? You really care about this. You, you sure that's wise? But those who know just what God has given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have, who, have, who have felt the guilt and the condemnation of their sin and have known what it is to pass through those waters of redemption and come out on the other side clean and, and have our faith in the Lord Jesus who died and now lives forever, those Christians, they get it. There's no sacrifice too much, no, no, no section of my life too big that if it is causing me to sin, I won't just chop it out for the Lord Jesus. No, no sacrifice that if God calls me to make it, I won't just do it with a smile on my face for the Lord Jesus. No service too low and menial and, 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 and humiliating for me to do for the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's a life given to missions. Don't we see this all the time? We all look back and we read of the radical missionaries who gave up and sold up everything to go to the mission field and we say, these guys are heroes, these ladies are the champions and then it's, it's one of our children or it's your friend or it's your uncle, or it's your pastor. This happened to Pastor Paul. I'm sure people wouldn't have wanted the Apostle Paul to leave their church, but God had called them. And they go, and they go with the, with the mindset that this is, less than, this is less than I should be giving to Jesus. Why didn't I go earlier? Why didn't I give more? When we are dead and we see the Lord Jesus face to face like Mary had the pleasure of doing, we will never say anything like, why did I waste that time? Why did I waste that money? Why did I waste that relationship? Why did I waste that effort? Why did I waste that resource or opportunity for Jesus? We'll just never think that. Every sacrifice made for the Lord Jesus is paid back in rewards by Jesus. But even before that day comes, it fills our own heart with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness and joy. She, she anoints him Fully spending, and, and in fact, you know, you do the maths in the other passages, which uh, 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 along with this one, and it's pretty much the equivalent of a full year's wage on medium to minimal wage. Maybe take this this day and age, thirty to fifty thousand dollars just wasted on Jesus, poured out in a moment. 
but it is the right kind of response for those who love the Lord Jesus. And then you see, and this is just so common, I, was, I saw this here and I thought we'd leave it, but it's so common today, it's so common even in Jesus' day, this is just natural to humankind, so I thought we'd, we'd at least look at it. This is called uh, virtue signaling. <coughs> look, at what, look at what they say. They say, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's the, that's the, 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 the yearly wage, and given to the poor. Now, this is, what, this is what we mean by virtue signaling. It's people who don't actually do something virtuous or somebody who don't act, are not actually more virtuous but say something in a moment to appear more virtuous than you. The reason we know this is virtue signaling and entirely false is because the guy saying it who sparks up the other disciples to agree with him is Judas. That not only are we about to read that he's going to go and betray Jesus for money, that he won't give to the poor. But also, in John's gospel, we're told that the whole ministry long, he was the treasurer for Jesus' disciples, and whatever they had in the bag, he would, he would take himself for it. He, he would take some off the top, you know, one for Jesus, one for me, one for the kingdom, one for me, one for the poor guy who keeps doing miracles for free, one for me, two for me, one for Jesus. He just kept on skimming off the top of Jesus the whole time. Judas didn't have a bad day at the, end of, at the end of an otherwise good ministry. He was stealing from the disciples and the poor that they would minister to the whole time through. And we're told that Mary and Martha and other women were the source of the income for the men. They were doing things, selling things, bringing money and goods to the disciples. Judas would receive it and then steal it. And then in the moment when, when Mary just does something straight to Jesus, doesn't go through the middleman Judas, pours out her worship, Judas says, you know, this is a bit of a waste, don't we think? We could have sold this money, given it to the poor, when he's literally about to go and betray a poor man and have him killed. Like Jesus is poor, homeless, 30-year-old ex-carpenter. He's going to go kill a poor guy, and he's got the audacity to stand up and say, you know, the poor could have been helped with this sort of money. And the reason we bring this up is because it happens today. Like, like, like Christians, Christians will say something that should just be non-controversial. Let's pick one. Babies should not be killed in the womb. Happy Mother's Day. Babies should not be killed. In the, we love babies. God loves babies. They shouldn't be cut to pieces and, and vacuumed out. Let's just, let's just say that. And then what's immediately brought up? Oh, really? How many kids have you adopted? How, how, many, how many people have you adopted out of poverty? How many times have you done that? And all of a sudden, you realize, oh, geez, I'm, I'm the bad guy here because I don't want babies to be murdered. Hang on. What's happening here? It's virtue signaling. Now, for two reasons. First of all, the person who says that has never adopted a baby. You, you just know that because they haven't, because it's just a virtue signal. They're Judas. They're defending the right to kill babies, right? Let's just think straight here. They're defending the right to kill babies, but they're the better person than you because they said kids should be adopted. Good job. We all agree with that. Stop defending babies being killed. Now, the reason we bring this up is not just because I know that many of you are having these conversations where you're trying to work in the gospel and stand up for the voice and the rights of the oppressed in the womb. Yes, that. Mm, is it because it's Mother's Day? Not really. God's, God's providence. But the reason we particularly bring it up is because you're in, you're in those, those discussions, those arguments, and what can stop you from being effective or bold, what can make you be cowardly when we should not be, is this act of virtue signaling. When people say, oh, really, that's very, you know, privileged, that's very white of you, that's very Christian of you, that's very traditional of you, whatever they say, and it happens every time the conversation comes up, the Christian in cowardness, cowardice says, yeah, you're right. I don't have the moral high ground on every situation. Maybe I shouldn't speak to that. Maybe I should step back from my bold initial claim. And I just want to encourage you not to be cowardly pushed back, but to simply, like Jesus, let the virtue signaling shots just bounce off you. Say, I don't care. This is still true. I'm not going to be bullied into feeling bad about something. This is still true. This is, the, this is the work of the enemy. If he can't win through truth, he'll win through manipulation. Judas like virtue signaling. And I don't want you to lose your opportunities for professing the gospel because you'll be called a name. Don't be cool shamed. You'll never be cool. Stop trying to be cool. You are the ultra-conservative, ultra-traditional, Jesus-believing, Bible-based Christian. You're never going to be cool in a culture like ours. Just stand firm on it. That's what you need to remember. That's what we need to sort of learn for our cultural moments, our sort of time where we are in history. 
Don't let the virtue signalers push you back. They are, they do not have the moral high ground while they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in Judas's situation. And in fact, we see Jesus push back against Judas and the other disciples with a, with a harsh rebuke. He says, look at verse six. Leave her alone. Would you shut up? That's what Jesus says. Leave her alone. 12 guys picking on one poor woman who's donating to me. You're going to call that a waste and pick on her for not giving to the poor? None of you give to the poor. Every time I try and give to the poor, you're all complaining, remember? Leave her alone. That's what Jesus says. Get off her back. Why do you trouble her? Jesus comes to the defense of extravagant worshipers who don't care about being cool shamed. He comes to their defense. He comes to your defense. If that's you, he sees the sacrifice. He sees the act. He knows that if you're making extravagant acts of service and sacrifice and worship like that, then you don't, or at least you shouldn't, care what other people think. You're not giving much money because you want other people to think much of you. That's, that's Ananias and Sapphira. Look how that worked out. You know, you're not trying to give, give through your acts of public service and ministry to the, to the poor or the needy or the, the widows or the mums in need or anything like that because you care what other people think. You're doing it for Jesus, and he sees it. And he knows that if he... I, I find interesting that he didn't say anything to her he says it to the guys. I don't think she was listening. She just kept on anointing him. She just kept on putting it on and then cleaning his feet. Jesus doesn't say to her, don't listen to them because she's so wrapped up in this faith. She's so wrapped up in this act of service that she doesn't care. She doesn't, she doesn't give a rip what the other disciples think she should have done with the money. She's worshiping Jesus. But he says to them, leave her alone. Look at what, she, what, what else he says. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This is what we learn in the Gospels. As Jesus tells his disciples in these motivations for good works, he says that things that are done for him, whether it's a glass of water to a servant, whether it's welcoming and being accommodating for a child, whether it is serving the poor, whether it is visiting those in affliction in hospitals and jails and whatnot, when you do those things, you do them for the Lord Jesus. And even though the act itself, let's be a little bit honest this morning, is always mingled with sin. Maybe we feel bad because we want to be like Mary and maybe we have been like Mary and we do great acts of service, but we're also a little bit like Judas and we also think what we could have bought with that money. That's okay. Jesus is not saying that this act is perfect. This act is meritorious for salvation. He is saying it is beautiful. It is done in faith. It is done despite her sin. It is done in response to the gospel promises of Jesus. It is done in a beautiful way. Jesus looks at every one of your sacrifices that other people mock, laugh at, uh, uh, scold, whatever it is. He calls them beautiful. Maybe it's not much. Maybe you don't have much uh, room on your plate at the moment, but what you have, you give to Jesus, and it's secret, and it's private, and it helps maybe one person. Jesus calls it beautiful. Maybe you've got a huge plate that's very wide open and you serve heartily for Jesus and you find that at the end of each day you're tired, at the end of each week you're exhausted and your resources are lower than they otherwise could have been. Jesus sees it. He calls it beautiful. And I love what he says next. Not only does he say, leave her alone, not only does he say what she has done is beautiful for the sake of her motivation and who it is to, but also he says, she has, uh, she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. It is, it is a, an infinite difference for you and I to say of ourselves with a shrug, ah, I did what I could. It's an entire chasm of difference between that and Jesus looking at you Assessing your motives, assessing your calendar, assessing your life, assessing your heart, assessing your reasons or excuses and saying, you did. You did all that you could. Uh, sorry, J.C. Ryle speaks of this and says, this is what you want to live for. There are excuses that we can make in our life around service or around righteousness or around speaking the gospel or around following the Lord Jesus in, in radical obedience. There's all sorts of excuses we can make that other people will hear and say, yeah, you did all you could. 
And then there's the excuses that hold up before Jesus when he actually says, you did do all that you could. We need to live for that statement. We need to not live under other people saying we did all that we could. Us making the excuse, I did all that I could, but live for the moment that Jesus says to us, you did all that you could. I honor you, and here is a foretaste of reward. A foretaste of reward is that Jesus makes this story of her as public, as universal, as timeless as the gospel itself. Not of the same significance, but of the same of the same spread wherever this book, the Bible goes, wherever the gospel is preached and the word is printed into people's language, this story of little old Mary is told as people open up books of the Bible and preach through in every tribe, tongue and nation from Eastern China to Western Europe to the Northern Alps to, to the southern tips of the Southern Hemisphere, wherever you go, people know about Mary. That's what God can do with simple, humble, radical obedience. God can honor you however he sees fit. And in heaven, none of us will, will find that our sacrifices or our obedience or our worship or our gratitude will go forgotten or scolded, but they will be rewarded as Jesus sees fit. I love that Jesus does that for this young lady, Mary, who has given so much for him because she gave so much for her and he goes on and rewards it. You know, he could have said, she did exactly what she owed me. I'm God in the flesh. I'm putting up with her. I deserve a little bit of nod. But he didn't. He rewards back. This is what St. Augustine calls crowning his own gifts. God gives you something like a father, like this is how it works. A mother on Mother's Day gives their kid some money or gives, them, gives their kid a card or gives their kid a gift, whatever. They come around the next day. Happy Mother's Day, mommy. Look what I got you. They give it back. Oh, thank you. How wonderful. Oh, it's, I left the price tag on it. Whoopsie. You know, whatever. You, you know that that's really your thing. You didn't gain anything. This is what C.S. Lewis called sixpence, none the richer. When a kid gets sixpence and buys his dad something for sixpence and gives it to his dad, his dad is not richer. Jesus is not now more blessed or holy or glorious or rich because now he's got $50,000 of perfume on his skin. He has no reason to say anything rewarding to her. He could have just looked at her and go, put up a persecution, you deserve it. He didn't. He rewarded back on top of what she had done. We have such a gracious and compassionate savior. And now look at verse 10. In this, the most stark of contrasts, the Jews who are trying to kill him, Mary who loves him so much and puts up with all in order to sacrifice for his sake because she doesn't know what else she can do, but she can anoint him for burial. And Judas, Iscariot, who was one of the 12. That, so often in the gospels, that phrase is put next to his name. It's not so you know who it is. We all know who Judas is. <laughs> no one names their kid Judas because we all know who Judas is. If you ever meet somebody named Judas, their parents hated him. I once met a kid named Legion. Made sense. I met the guy, but that's a weird thing to put on a birth certificate. You never meet a Judas because we all know who it is. That's not why he says one of the 12. The reason it's there is for emphasis. Like stop and think, Judas, one of the only 12 men enabled to walk with the incarnate Christ for three whole years through his whole ministry, heard every sermon, listened to every prayer, was prayed over and gifted with so many authorities and powers to cast out demons. That Judas, one of the 12. He, one of the 12, the 12, only 12 in all of human history, him, went out to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, of course, they were glad. And they promised him money. The guy who just complained to Mary about wasting money goes out and betrays him for the promise of money. And he sought an opportunity to be able to betray him. Judas, Judas does the opposite of what Mary does. Judas sees Jesus as an opportunity to get money. I, I think that's why he initially would have started following Jesus. A miracle worker, and this was common. Let's, let's not think this is an, an anomaly. In Jesus' day, there were other try-hard miracle workers who were doing things for a fee. Well, he starts hearing of this Jesus who can do things that the other guys only dream about. He tags along. 
He's in the groupie bunch. He's jumping on the van. He wants an end to this, this very, this very uh, uh, money-producing work. And it never works out. Jesus keeps giving away. Jesus never does what Judas wanted. And, and then the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil. At no point in any of the sermons that Judas heard, like in Mark 8, what do you gain if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Judas stood there and heard it and heard nothing. Beware for the love of glory and the love of money. Judas sat there and heard it and heard nothing. The Son of Man has come to be a ransom for his enemies. Judas stood there, heard it, and heard nothing. J.C. Ryle tells us at this point we see how far somebody can go in the outward displays, even the inward deception of religion, without truly being saved. Judas stands as the timeless, universal, to all generations, warning against putting our faith putting our rest or our trust that we are saved in anything external. The warning goes forward. The warning, just as the, the, the word of Mary comes to us, and wherever the gospel is preached, so the story of Mary is known, so also wherever the gospel is preached, the warning of Judas dangles over us. Do not, do not let yourselves assume you have Jesus. Assume you are saved from wrath. Assume you are not condemned because you're a church. I mean, how many people go to church on Mother's Day? Yeah, the cream of the crop. How many people get up early, go to church? How many people are this involved in church? How many people give so much as I give and go to, go to such a, a great fellowship group or have such great theological discussions or, or care so much about the poor? Whatever it is, there's nothing external that secures the fact that you are saved except for an inward, an inward rest and reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we get to the point. We've seen, how did the Jews treat the king with betrayal? How did Mary treat the king with honor and anointing and worship? How did Judas treat the king with betrayal for money? How did God treat the king? This is very backwards today, I know. Like our culture does not usually spend their time thinking, I wonder who the rightful Lord of the universe is. I wonder to whom I shall give an account upon my death. They don't think it. We're just not speaking the same language when we say Jesus is king, so repent. There is no creator, there is no water, I'm not going anywhere when I die, I'm just stardust turned into this visible matter. I, I, like, what is there? This is the reality to all those right now who do not believe the gospel of Jesus and are not saved and are in a similar situation to Judas, hear this, God made us. He is the reason the world exists and he made us upright and perfect in a world of glory. Man's sin has, has brought about the, the curse in the universe. Our own sin is what was punished by God and therefore we live in the world that is broken and that is, that is horrible and is filled with betrayal and disease and sickness and death and war and abortion because we sinned. And over us, to each of us, God has given the condemnation that our sins deserve, which is eternity in hell because we have sinned against and offended a infinitely holy God. And yet in his great love, he sent his son into the world in the person of Jesus to live as a baby to a teenage mom that was very poor, gave birth to him miraculously, raised as a human being, lived as a boy, lived as a teenager, lived as a man, never with sin, perfect in his life, and then fulfilled the prophecies that God had spoken to teach and preach and heal and then be offered up on the cross as a representative substitute for sinners. So that if today you hear the news that Jesus died, but he was perfect, he died for our sins, for your sins. And that three days later, he rose from the grave in victory and God did to the king. Here's what God does to the king, raised him up and seated him on the throne and promised that he will judge everybody. He will judge everything. So that right now, your most important decision in your life your whole life, your whole eternity hangs on this. What do you say and think about Jesus? Do you bend your knee like Mary and say, he is Lord, he died, he rose, he is God, he deserves my all and my obedience and my worship. If that is you, then this day you are saved 
God forgives you. God cleanses you. God gives to you his own righteousness. God promises you eternal life. That is the gospel. But if we reject it, and this is where it comes down to how we treat the king that God has honored, that God has given judgment to, that God has given the throne to whom all of us will give an account when we die for our sins and whether we believe the gospel. Now, now the question is, how do you treat that king? Do you now blaspheme his name, say that it's all a joke, it's all a myth, it's all made up for money? You say, this is just a nonsense, this is religion, this is, this is mythology, or do you bend the knee to the Lordship of Christ because nothing is more certain in history that Jesus died, rose again, and is now ruling? Will you now believe that? Stop trying to run from him or stop trying to impress him. You can do neither. Like Mary, just give up. Rest in the loving arms of the Lord Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you that you might be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, as we bow our heads and close our eyes and consider, consider what Jesus did and how we ought to respond. I know that in this room, there are many who do not know you and you know perfectly who they are. That some of us are children of parents. Some of us are parents that have visited along to a church. Some of us are, are friends who have come along. Some of us have been longtime church people. Some of us have been in churches for decades, served in ministry, but not saved. Father God, may the warning of Judas not merely threaten, but invite us. May the warning of Judas be the, be the warning sign pointing towards the edge of the cliff saying, do not go there. Do not be like that. Do not come to Jesus for what you can gain in this world. Do not try and gain the world and then lose your soul, but believe his words. Trust his promises that he is God, that he died for me, and that his, 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 his eternal life is given and he will keep me and save me. Father God, would those promises ring true in every heart this morning, including those that have not yet believed. Make them Christians. Forgive their sins, Lord God, please. Not because we are good enough, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but like Mary, we have been, we've been given grace, and it is your joy to give more grace and more grace and more blessing. Father God, would you make us a people that is zealous for good works, not because of who in this life they serve or because of what we can get out of them, but like Mary, our motivation, what, what makes our works good is that they are done for Jesus, that they are done out of faith and sacrifice. Father God, would you accept our worship this morning as soon we stand up and sing and we go out to live our life and we are all aware of our sin and our, uh, our shortfallings and our failures and our difficulties. We just trust you, Lord. You'll continue to be gracious with us. Please continue to accept our service and our life and our prayers in that grace that the Lord Jesus was offered up in. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst. And everybody said, amen. amen.